I always feel weird after I come back from yoga because I feel all limber, like I'm about to do something huge. And then I just sit on my arse and talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to be a pretty common thing on a Sunday. Yeah, it's the most anticlimactic warm up ever. Like I spend an hour and a half stretching and then I come back <laughs> and I just sit on my arse and talk to you. But it's hardcore political podcast. Mm. And uh, to be honest, I, have, I haven't pulled a single muscle <laughs> in all my two years of podcasting. It's true. So, you know, whatever works. So I think I'm going sli- slightly mad because, you know, yesterday we recorded the interview um, that we're going to play today and we chatted about Brexit and that. Uh-huh. And then last night afterwards, I went to a house party here in London and Brexit was one of the main topics of conversation there. Woohoo. And then, and then this morning I got up, hung over and edited yesterday's interview and had to listen to us talk about Brexit again. Uh-huh. And then I, I went, like, as I said, I went to yoga and I thought, okay, this would be a nice calming break. But they do a thing at the start where the, the is it a yogi? Or am I making that up? I don't know. The person who does the a yogi is like a Hindu like spiritual leader. I don't know if it applies to <laughs> Who steals <yoga>. picnic baskets. <laughs> the, anyway, the, the instructor does this thing usually at the start where they say, you know, like the hippie stuff of like setting your intentions. And if there's, they specifically say, if there's anything you don't want to take with you into your class, then now let's do some deep breathing and sigh it out. And usually that's just, you know, you breathe in and you sigh out. But I could have sworn the guy next to me, I don't know whether it's because I was just thinking about Brexit, but when he sighed out, he went, Brexit. (laughs) No one acknowledged it. Like I was the only one who... Re- reacted like no one like, laughed or giggled and I don't know whether it was me or it was this guy actually just going Brexit I know that like I've never done yoga myself but I've heard that a pretty common thing is that people fart like <laughs> accidentally as they stretch and stuff quite quite often like it has nothing to do with you know the schlubbiness of the person it could be like an amazingly attractive yoga person who's like so I wonder then like later on through the session did you did someone fart in front of you and you heard like Brexit <laughs> I just, I'm just after remembering we're, we might get some new like Irish Times listeners on this episode because of our guests and this is how we're introducing them. This is exactly what they should expect. <laughs> the topic of discussion is what I'm wrong with politics and perhaps it could be the fact that some people actually trust us to give them political information. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even if we do go out and ask for amazing guests who are generous enough to give us their time, such as Hugh Linehan. Yeah, we will get to that in a second. There, uh, This is a long enough episode, so we're going to keep things nice and tight up top. Um, no new section, because we actually talk about a lot of current events in the body of the interview. But just a couple of our plugs. What on politics on Instagram and Twitter and Gmail, if you want to get in contact with us. Um, also, a very special plug. We didn't mention it on the last episode, but uh, friends of the show, Jaron Keane, as a Christmas present to us, made whatampolitics.games. Yes. Which is an amazing. It's, it's a website you visit on your phone, and it's a series of two-player games uh, that are loosely based on the themes of this show. So there's a Loosely game based. On, I would say that they're entirely represented. There there is a game called Low Hanging Fruit. So it's it's very very indicative of the tone of this show. Actually, come to think of it, uh, so Pong game is like they throw our different witticisms at each other. Yeah, which is great. They're all dead on. Yeah, and what was the other one? It's oh, like the, an audio fader game that you have to match up the different things. Yeah, and as I watch with trepidation my audio levels going up wondering if they're too high I can relate <laughs> yeah. so check that out whatonpolitics.games there'll be a link in the description as well if you want to have a go at that and thank you to Jaron Keane for doing that uh, also the Kofi uh, if you want to listen to our bonus episode and want to buy us a beer in doing so then head on over to whatonpolitics.com forward slash beer is the link and chuck us a couple of quid and you will get in return a exclusive bonus episode that we recorded while shit face drunk and also, Steve, I'm going to float this out there if there's because we got messages from people saying that if they had money, they donate, but they don't, which is totally fair. That's fine. If you want to, say, put out a very favorable tweet or talk about your favorite episode and tag us in it, then we'll shoot you over that bonus episode anyway. Yeah. So even if you don't have the money, that's totally fine. Just share the podcast with a friend, maybe recommend, you know, what episode would be a good one to jump in at, your favorite one maybe, and uh, just tag us and we'll we'll shoot that episode over to you as well. No bother. We also accept custom-made Pokemon drawings. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> yes. But we also, if you are a Twitter person and you're tweeting at us, you're tweeting at us to try and promote the show and we can see that your name is at Super Rich Dude, then, you know, we may not actually give you the bonus episode because we think you are Mr. Moneybags. 
<laughs> at Monopoly Man. Who's <laughs> at Bill Gates? Bill Gates is tweeting about this, but he won't fucking give us the three quid we need. And then we're even though he may have like ten bazillion followers, he's not getting that episode. Bill Gates. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so th- I think that's everything that we, we need to get out of the way. So, uh, listeners who listened to our New Year's episode, where we talked about our changing relationship with politics, uh, will know that we've kind of been wrestling with the question of whether or not politics as like a concept and as a practice is actually in decline, or whether it's just our perception or just our obsession with the news cycle. And so following on from that, Steve, you had the idea of reaching out to Hugh Linehan from the Irish Times. Yeah, he hosts their weekly um, Irish Times politics podcast, which goes into great depth with a lot of Irish political affairs. They get in the Irish, politi- the Irish Times poli- politics correspondents who are like the number one politics journalists in Ireland, certainly among them. Um, because the Irish Times is considered like the paper of record in Ireland mm. in the same way like you got the New York Times in the States and mm. I, whichever newspaper you want to decide is in the UK because I know that would be a controversial thing if I pick a specific one that's the sun yeah it's obviously the sun yeah the Irish Times politics podcast is very very good and even though they just they don't just talk about Irish politics especially Hugh himself he loves to um discuss all things that are going on in the general political world such as yeah. Brexit and Trump and that is what we spend a lot of time talking about so I thought it would be a good idea to get someone who knows an awful lot about these two, two subjects to try and hash yeah. it out with us and you headed over to the Irish Times offices itself yeah. I was uh, here in London but it was a great chat it was a great chat I think we've done enough faffing around let's just get to it okay Richie we're live great now what do we do <laughs> I guess we have to conduct some sort of interview. We do. So I was doing a little bit of Saturday morning reading, some light casual Saturday morning reading of the uh, Merriam-Webster 2018 edition of the dictionary. You're welcome for that Christmas present, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's been broadening my vocabulary exponentially. <laughs> uh, and I noticed that the phrase dumpster fire had been added uh, into it, like as an actual official phrase. Its definition is an utterly calamitous or mismanaged situation or occurrence. And Dumpster Fire was actually also the meme of the year in 2016. So are you putting two and two together because this episode is titled What I'm Wrong With Politics? And we're going to talk about yeah, all the worst things about what we've been talking about for the last two years. Yeah, is this is this a sign of the times, I'm wondering? The fact that the one of the Bible of words has basically jumped on board with how we've been describing politics in America, at least. Since 2016. Yeah, well, to answer this question and others, we have Hugh Linehan from the Irish Times. Um, culture editor, I believe, is your most former and senior title, is it? Yeah, I've got an ampersand now. It's arts ampersand culture editor. Um, but you are also, most importantly for our purposes, host of the Irish Times Politics Podcast. I am indeed, yeah. I'm out of many, I'm out of many hats in here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> A fine hat that you're wearing as well today. It would, oh. uh, it would work at any Sunday Mass, I would say. Donegal Tweed, yeah. <laughs> can't, you, you, you can't beat it. You're very welcome to. We should say we are actually in the... Uh, um, the Irish Times uh, podcast studio here. Yes, um, we should. Um, and thank you to the Irish Times for letting us do that, even if they may not necessarily know, but we are in here um, with Hugh's permission. No, don't tell anyone <laughs> and stay away from the drinks cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't ever seen such a secure drinks cabinet. It's amazing. It must be because uh, the journalists uh, finished on the Friday. We're here on a Saturday afternoon. We weren't able to use the Headstuff studio because I think they're replacing the floors <laughs> or something something like that, like legitimately. We never had floors before No, then. that's true, yeah. It was just we're putting a cavernous in. G- gap in the floor. That, crowd running, that, that crowdfunding thing for the floors finally went through so next one is the roof guys we need a roof next (laughs) so yeah we are here and originally we wanted to talk about Trump but yeah because it's just a two year anniversary ish ish. of of his presidency well it will be coming up next. I think probably by the time the episode is released it would have been just Mm. over two years since he was inaugurated and but we're sick to our tits of talking just about Trump. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, we're in good company. So we are going to talk about all the things wrong with all the politics in all the world. An easy, easy topic to do on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, and Hugh's going to solve it for us. And then he's going to publish a report on how to fix in politics. In 30 seconds or less, yeah, because that's what we do in journalism. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, 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 we point out the solutions, not the problems. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I mean, even speaking of dumpster fires, I mean, even the, even the, you know the Brexit coverage earlier this week with the um, the maize deal going down in flames and, and and all that stuff. It's looking around at my colleagues and listening to the you know the radio programs. Uh, 
there's a strange sort of reaction on the part of journalists at this point, because on one level, this is what we love. Huge crisis, un, the words unprecedented being bandied around left, right and centre, historic, cataclysmic, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> and, the, and so there was all that. There was a bit of that adrenaline surge that we get. But on the other hand, there was all this, oh, God, will this bloody thing never end? And uh, I don't know what your language rules are in this podcast, but what the fuck is going to happen next? And uh, there's nothing good is going to come of this. And there's both those things happening simultaneously. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before. And it's not that, you know, that journalists uh, are scared of catastrophe. In fact, they like catastrophe. It's uh, it's uh, one of our it's dirty little, it's one of our dirty little secrets. <laughs> You'll never see a, a happier newsroom than when something really dreadful and cataclysmic has happened, has just happened. You know, everybody's on it. But there's something about this. Maybe it's about how it's dragging on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, 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 is part of it. Maybe we shouldn't put it at the top of the show, but also, I guess, because there's no light at the end of the tunnel and we just, all we see is just a never ending string of catastrophes that just seem to be getting worse and worse with no visible possible solution to it. Well, in relation to to Brexit, I suppose the other element is there's a ticking clock, which there isn't necessarily in in, in some of the other instances. So something will happen. Mm. We don't know what the thing is, but something will happen. Um, the, the kind of the most, um, I suppose, the least kind of cataclysmic one right now is an extension. And we know that kick the can down the road is in, in, in most political dispensations is the first, you know, is the first option. And I'd say that's probably the, the first most likely thing to happen. But an extension itself is really not going to last that long. I think the politics of it are such that it'll only be for three months or so mm. uh, and it can't be for longer. And it can only, co- it'll have to come with some sort of process being agreed, by which I mean uh, an election or a referendum or a renegotiation. Those are, the, those are the three things, really. We'll pause that there because we do. We are going to talk about Trump first, just to get him out of the way. Probably a couple of seconds ago, we said that we were all sick to our tits of talking about Trump. Let's let's start by talking about Trump. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> but we'll move on to some sim- similarly uh, catastrophic and sad things afterwards. But let's start with Trump. Yeah. Hugh, you concurred when we said about being sick to our tits talking to Trump. Are you feeling more and more disenfranchised with with the man and the subject as a whole? Or is it, do you feel like your professionalism still needs to carry you through it? Or like how, like before we get into details in general, how are you feeling about the whole Trump thing? Um, I'm probably feeling a little bit better than I was maybe uh, a year ago because I think... Uh, and maybe this is a natural optimist. I think I'm beginning to see the contours of the end that may be in sight. Um, mm. I think in the wake of the of the midterm elections, and in the midst of, as we speak anyway, in the in the midst of the shutdown, mm. um, we're, we're we're seeing certain things happen, which have to give you cause for optimism if you think that he's the worst thing that's ever happened to the United States presidency, which I do. Um, and one is that he's, uh, his, his poll ratings are, drip, are dripping, dipping. Um, <laughs> and they're probably dripping as well. They are probably <laughs> dripping. His poll ratings are going down a little bit. This whole business, which we've heard for two years or more now, of no matter what he does, if he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue, the base is still with him. There's the first signs in the polls that that might, might not be the case among the white working class. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, Muller is coming. Mueller is coming and he's going to bring a whole shed load of shed load of stuff with him. The Democrats are looking um, a little more a little more coherent and there are the first signs of elements of the institutional Republican Party reacting to those uh, realities and maybe beginning to make noises and starting to peel away and these include things like um, you know Steve King, the absolutely yeah. abysmal, abhorrent congressman from Iowa, being censured by the by the House u- unanimously for for his latest uh, comments about about white supremacy. Steve King uh, was one of the earliest supporters of Trump. Iowa obviously is always key in the in the in the presidential primaries. So all these kinds of you know straws in the wind make me a little bit more optimistic. Of, of course. I could be wrong about that because there have been kind of false stones before in, rela- in, in, in relation to this stuff. And there's a long and jagged road ahead to get us out of this. And there are really legitimate fears that Trump, unconstrained or cornered like a rat, might really do some things that had to do some really lasting, permanent, awful damage. 
You mean in the sense of using his powers as president, which we always seem to forget that he actually has because he uses them so rarely, essentially. Yeah, and even the absurd tit-for-tat thing that happened in the last few days with Nancy Pelosi Mm. saying he couldn't have his State of the Union and then him saying, well, you're not going to Afghanistan and then leaking the details of of the trip. That just kind of shows where, no matter what happens until he's out of office, where his greatest power lies. And I think we see this in in, um, other presidential histories over the last last few decades, that in the latter stages of a presidency, the, the the most unfettered part of presidential power is the one that applies to foreign affairs uh, and uh, what America does does overseas. And so, and and also, you know, there's there's always that you know wag the dog fear that you try and cause a cause a distraction by creating an international incident or a violent yeah. incident or instigating something of that sort. So yeah, that would be that would be the main fear. Wag the dog movie from the nineties where. The movie they they, they essentially construct a, fa- a false war to deflect from domestic issues. Hopefully, that movie is a satire and not like a playbook for Trump that he uses in his last two years. Yeah, well, luckily he wouldn't have the attention span to watch an entire ninety-minute movie anyway, so we'll be fine. Um, <laughs> we have a treat that we organised when we were planning to do an entire Trump episode. Yeah, but since we're not going to go that far, we picked out a selection of his tweets that we kind of thought summed up his year in office. We asked the president to record them for us and send them on. Mm. Yeah. So what do you want to hear first? Because I've got them all queued up here. Uh, You're fired. (laughs) Mike Pompeo, director of the CIA, will become our new secretary of state. He will do a fantastic job. Thank you to Rex Tillerson for his service. Jaina Haspel will become the new director of the CIA and the first woman so chosen. Congratulations to all. So this tweet um, came around spring last year and he essentially fired his secretary of state via Twitter while he was working in Africa at the time, I believe. And he only found mm. out about it when the news broke that he was no longer secretary of state and that Mike Pompeo was going to be moved into the office. So... That is, this is only one tiny instance of the firing and rehiring that has been going on in the White House. But I think he broke the record for the most senior level job changes within the first year. So I think he must be doubling down on holding the record then with what, what, all that went on in the second year. Yeah, the Rex Tillerson thing. I mean, everybody's kind of forgotten about it now and forgotten about Rex Tillerson. Yeah. Uh, the words, the hapless, always seem to be, <laughs> need to be inserted before the, before the name Rex, Rex Tillerson, you know, um, God, he had a terrible time of it, you know, from the from from the moment he came in. Um, God, it's it it seems like such a minor incident now. And there is, a, I mean, to go, go back to what you were saying at the start about Trump, the fact that he just sucked up all the oxygen and keeps doing it all the time. I mean, all this stuff, and this is, I suppose, one of the fears is that somebody learns how to do this more effectively in the future, mm. just to kind of dominate the you know the discourse in this way. Um, Tillerson, of course, was quoted in, I'm trying to remember which of the books it was, uh, as describing uh, uh, Trump as a, quote, fucking moron. <laughs> that, was um, the, that was the... Fire and Fury? Oh, the Fire and Fury, I think, was it? No, it wasn't Fire and Fury, it was Fear. By Woodward. Woodward, yep. yeah. Yeah, um, they, all, they all blur into each other. I know. Don't they? <laughs> um, Fire, Fury, Fear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all of that. And and I suppose in a way he, he follows a particular kind of a model of people who were in the Trump administration in the first two years. And um, they've all nearly gone now. Uh, with the possible exception of the, of the new Attorney General maybe fits that model, which mm. is an institutional mainstream conservative Republican who believes for perhaps a variety of reasons that it's worth their while going into the administration, even if they have serious, had serious reservations about Trump. And that's it would seem to be, in, in, in the case of these people, a combination of they feel they can ameliorate any damage he can do. They're signed up for large elements of his conservative agenda. They believe they have, you could characterize this as either they have a duty of service to the state or an arrogance that believes they have the right to rule the state. You could see that one either way. And each one of them has emerged, you know, kind of ble- bleeding and battered and ragged out the back door of the White House within, you know, within 12 or 18 months. Um, Richie, do you want to play the caravan? Oh, absolutely. Sadly, it looks like Mexico's police and military are unable to stop the caravan heading to the southern border of the United States. Criminals and unknown Middle Easterns are mixed in. I have alerted Border Patrol and military that this is a national emergency. Must change laws. 
and this is from the 22nd of October 2018 mm. um, this pretty much made up the bulk of his rhetoric leading up to the midterms it was this um, idea that there was a caravan of migrants moving towards the border um, we talked about it plenty of times on the show before it, it was a real thing there was a, there was a, a chain of refugees trying to make their way up through Central America to the border but he really amplified it made it worse and then threw in the different elements about there being potential terrorist threats from Middle Easterns which I believe this week he did again didn't he talking about prayer mats being found along the border to try and elevate the level of fear yeah, and in hatred. a way the, the caravan you know uh, illustrates kind of a lot of things about 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 where this whole business is at the moment uh, the lies the untrammeled lies the way those lies are repeated by the you know conservative news network primarily fox but the but the other ones as well uh, the way that they're challenged by other media but that seems to have to have no effect no. whatsoever. The way that the caravan just kind of stopped being a story on Fox News the day after the midterm elections. Um, the 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 revolting racism of that ad, which um, which Trump put out um, by brown people coming to coming to kill you. The lies, as you say, about about terrorists. I mean, Sarah Sanders was forced mm. to retract on camera this allegation that there were Islamist terrorists coming over the uh, coming you know coming over the border. And I suppose the, the most important thing that it illustrates is that is probably what is one of the most fundamental problems, if it's not the most fundamental problem, which is that there's no shared media space anymore in which people can have their disagreements with each other and people of different different persuasions will actually be sharing the same information and have some level, you know, maybe, you know, can be quite cynical, but have some level of trust in the information they're being given. So, you know, uh, we're going to these different sources of information. Some people believe about the camera, about the caravan. Some people don't, and they never talk to each other, and they never look at the alternative sources of information. And that's why, from day one, when um, um, when we had that first press conferences about Trump's inauguration, yeah. the, the 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 administration has actually seen a benefit in in lying. This whole business about lying is interesting. It's one we've we've discussed a few times on 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 our politics. Podcast and on a on a number of occasions we've talked about this business of the parallels between the techniques used by and this is you know this is this is contested territory but the techniques used by um by by fascist and authoritarian governments in the past and the tactics used by the Trump administration and also more recently the tactics used by what's called the postmodern authoritarianism of Putin mm. and and governments of that sort and one of the things that people say people who know a lot more about this stuff than me, is that the use of a lie in this uh, in this kind of environment is different from what we used to think about, about political lying. That people don't mind being seen to lie, that being seen to be a liar, telling more lies, actually has a political benefit because it undermines the whole concept of truth, which is the whole postmodern part of postmodern authoritarianism you can't believe anybody so just you know just just um support the strongest liar in the room and i'm the strongest liar in the room we um we talked about this before this this story and um the idea of hoax floods which was you know purposefully flooding feeds people's social mm. media feeds with targeted misinformation around specific events and so this caravan story got a lot of of hope these quote unquote hoax floods around it where people were just being bombarded with uh, white broad spectrum lies basically kind of hitting everything and people could kind of pick and choose what they believe what they wanted to believe from these hoax floods sure and this I mean this obviously ties into a broader thing about you know we're I'm sitting to you, with you here in a in a newspaper office and about some kind of really 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 profound changes broader changes in in te- uh, technology and communications technology in particular and therefore the media and the way in which people get and dissemination and share and consume information and you know we ain't, we ain't got to cover all that here today in the in the, in in the length of time we have but it really goes back to all this stuff this question of are we at this gutenberg moment and and is the are the changes in society driven by this new technology as profound as what happened in the you know in the in the fifteenth century mm. um, and, and they were pretty profound and if 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 that's the case and I think it probably is we're kind of at the start of something here um, and there's no doubt that thing is scary and there's no doubt that a lot of what we're seeing as a result of that is really bad at the moment but it's only the start of it and we don't really know where it's going. 
That's the optimism in you coming out again. <laughs> if it, no, could, we, it could we, be true. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, what happened after Gutenberg? You know, the, you know, true, yeah, the Reformation, a yep. hundred years of war, uh, collapse of various ways of doing things. You know, ultimately, and you know, also, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, the coming of democracy, the Industrial Revolution, the raising of living standards across the world, all those things too. Stop bringing yeah. in optimism. We don't have any time for that. Um, <laughs> do you want to do the foreign policy one quickly, just because it's worth doing? <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a great one. When referring to the USA, I will always capitalize the word country. So, like, is there no one? Is there is there no one proof proofreading these things? No, no. That's that was one of the things. Always, he he just has his own phone and he just tweets them out himself. I mean, he doesn't know how to spell forest. <laughs> Because like, you all you often hear about um like say in the in the twenty sixteen election, Clinton's social media team, the the kind of strat strat they had of like approving and targeting their messaging and crafting every word. So when, you know, tweets did go out, they were these perfectly considered things. And then on the other side of things, you have Trump who will frequently just quote gibberish or, th- or words like kafifi. Despite the negative press kafifi. But there's, this is part of the, I mean, that is part of the brand, you know, and, and that's arguably one of the most effective parts of the brand is that, I mean, you know, how bizarre was it that when people were asked during the 2016 election about the things that appealed to them about Trump as opposed to his, uh, as opposed to Clinton, was his, quote, authenticity. Mm. You know, here's this completely media manufactured liar who's lied about everything to do with where his money came from and how he made it and uh, what kind of a person he is and 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 everything else. Uh, and he's, a, you know, and he's a multi-billionaire and he's the authentic man of the people. Uh, and how does he achieve that? And a big, big part of that is language. And you know the way people talk about about the way they, you, you know, there's this debate about whether his mental faculties have diminished over the years since yes. the 1990s, mm. and how his vocabulary has has shrunk, and 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 maybe that's part of a some kind of mental issue with him. But I think it's just as much with him understanding that if he speaks. He, uh, if he speaks in this way and if he tweets in that way and he's not worried about misspellings, he is connecting with the general population in a way that those highly crafted, uh, elegant rhetoric of Barack Obama, for example, um, it, it, it's a kind of it's a contrast to that. And so much of what Trump is about, I think, is a, a straightforward counter revolution backlash against what Barack Obama represented. Mm. Now, you know, you can argue the pros and cons of Barack Obama, but one thing about Trump is he really is in so many ways the mirror image of him. Yeah, and he has like so many different times you've heard that from those different books that came out that he would almost just, if you heard that Barack Obama had backed something, that would almost be a way to get him to twist his, if he had, if he was for something, you could just say, oh, well, Barack Obama liked that. And he goes, oh, well, then I hate it. Yeah. It was almost like that's uh, is mm. one of his defining and ideologies. And that's not even getting into the whole getting hookers to piss on the bed that Barack <laughs> Obama slept in thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's taken us on to the uh, Russia investigations, which is likely to dominate certainly the next half of a year, if not more. And we'll just quickly play what Trump's particular opinion of this from February 27th, 2018. Witch hunt! That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Was there an exclamation mark at that? Yes, it was all caps. This is uh, 12.49pm. I presume that's DC time, uh, February 27th, 2018. So he's been shouting this a lot. And it looks like the Democrats are going to start using their newly found congressional powers that they've gotten after they won the House in the midterms. And there's been word about that now. BuzzFeed claimed to have gotten proof that the president uh, compelled his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress last year. But that was yesterday's news. And today's news (laughs) is that Robert Mueller uh, has, has issued a press statement saying the BuzzFeed article is wrong, but not specifying in what sense and in what part. So the world is just ripping itself apart again, trying to figure out what is exactly going on. And I think it is important to say, as somebody who doesn't believe in postmodern authoritarianism or lying for the sake of lying, that that on the liberal progressive media side, which which is where BuzzFeed is, you know, there have been missteps and people have overreached. Um, what really is memorable for me this week about this particular story is that Mueller said something. Yeah, it's that was actually I was extraordinary that Mueller says something, and that to me is the biggest news because yeah. in this astonishing long-form multi-year TV drama that we're in, I think we're in season five or something at this point, aren't we? Um, the, the the one constant, the one brilliant uh, script uh, device has been the existence of the silence of Mueller. 
The silence of Muller is a fantastic device. We in the cut world. to his office, dark at night. The lights are still on, and they're just working around, and you can see activity and people talking, but you can't hear what they're saying. Mm. And then you just cut back to the action of everybody yeah. wondering what's going to happen. When's he eventually going to <laughs> drop this bomb? It, 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 it is brilliant, and it is incredibly impressive, you know, because nobody else is silent at all. Yeah. Very, very, quite, you know, you know, quite the opposite. But it, it does beg the question of, you know, is everybody going to be disappointed when the report finally lands if we ever see it? Which, of course, is a moot point about whether it's released. I think we will see it. I can't imagine it's going to be locked away in a basement in the well, Department of Justice. But um, but it, th- there does seem to me to be some possibility that uh, it might not be, you know, the series of smocking guns, to quote uh, <laughs> Donald Trump, that, um, that, um, we missed that, tweet. that, that people hope that, you know, that, 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 that people hope for. It, it is a possibility, you know, but yeah. Um, well, can I just Mueller bri- is coming, though, isn't he? he can really I briefly ask, do you think Trump will get impeached by Congress before um, he finishes this term? I think it's looking more likely now than it was a few weeks ago. I know some people think it is. Um, I think if the Democrats have any cop at all, they will only institute impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives if they believe there's a very strong chance of bipartisan support for it in the Senate. And, and therefore, firstly, in the in, in the House, because the rules, um, as you know, is that you know impeachment can be uh, can be passed by a by a simple majority uh, in in the House of Representatives, but it needs a supermajority of two thirds of senators um, in the in 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 the Senate. And what happened with Nixon in seventy four was it became apparent that that supermajority was uh, was it was it was available at that stage. So what that means in the current situation in the in in, in the Senate, when the, where the Republicans themselves have a relatively comfortable majority, I think it's fifty three seats, is that you have to peel off nearly half of those of those Republicans. And that means that the, the and impeachment proceedings need to be, in my view, a lot more compelling, say, for example, than what was revealed this week, should mm. that prove to be true, that Donald Trump, uh, that Donald Trump essentially instructed or persuaded Cohen to lie to Congress. Because I don't think that'll get that number of senators at this point, Republican senators at this no, point. And, yeah. and there is a, there is another thing too. Um, I had a uh, big name drop coming here. I did an interview with James Comey last summer when he was over promoting his book. Um, and he has always said that for the health of American democracy, uh, it would be far better if uh, Trump was kicked out of the White House by, by the voters of the United States than by an impeachment process. And I think there's some truth. Mm. Um, so we should probably move on to Brexit now because we ended up talking an awful lot about the person that we said we weren't going to talk too much <laughs> about. Um, yeah, we did touch on Brexit at the start of the at, at, at the at the show, but I, I very rudely asked you to shut up so we could talk about it a little bit later. <laughs> and, you, and you hit him and I had to edit out that slap. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, Hugh. That was very it's, rude of Steve. I'm just so excited about actually being inside the Irish Times. I've been paying my subscription for ages, but they don't send you out big golden tickets to come in and visit, would you believe? No, we should do that. We actually. should. We yeah. should. We will. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to the editor about that. Um, so yeah, Brexit. That is ongoing, uh, will not be solved by the time this episode is released. So hopefully the news that we're about to talk about will still be relevant um, by Tuesday. Mm-hmm. How are your, I, I, so I'm over here now, anytime I open my bedroom window, I can just, I'm just bombarded with the sounds of confused people angrily shouting questions about Brexit. Mm. Much like when we start talking about Trump, like how has your feelings about it evolved as a journalist, especially one being like across in Ireland, looking at it from the outside? Have you grown more disenfranchised with it? Have you gotten used to it? What are you, how have you? I'm. Uh, I think I'm probably nearly as bewildered as ever, but I probably might be slightly bewildered in a slightly different way than I was six months ago or something. My uh, my inclination is to try and question my own instincts on these things, and there is a kind of a you know a groupthink in Ireland about you know what a terrible thing it is, what a terrible place it comes from intellectually and politically, uh, how its impacts are entirely negative, how it's um, how it's basically a conspiracy against the best interests of the United Kingdom by some nefariously minded individuals who've managed to pull their, you know, who've managed to pull the wool over the eyes of a bunch of, you know, stupid, uneducated people. All those kinds of things which are kind of, you know... <laughs> Make me uncomfortable to think about. Think any of those things are true, even though some of them may be true. I don't. I don't. I. I don't think all of them are true. So I find myself. I mean, our, you know, our our big voice on this subject in here in the Irish Times is Fintan O'Toole. We've had Fintan in on our podcast a few times to talk about it, and he's he's published his book, and his book is very popular, and Remainers in 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 the UK um, uh, really like it, and I think there are huge elements of truth in the way what. 
Finton characterizes as a as a British malaise, a sort of post-imperial longing for 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 past glories and inability to reconcile with its current place in the world, and a sort of fracturing I have of, of the British down. imperial identity. That's in, in my notes that I shared with Richie, but I didn't intentionally steal it from Finton. Yeah, <laughs> no, he did. As Finton does, he's taken like the the long view, the cultural aspect about this idea of nation states. But just to bring it back to the possibility, it sounds like you're almost opening yourself up that there could be possible goods to come out of it. And I think David McWilliams today in your paper has an opinion, Pete, saying that it isn't all just doom and gloom and there is some potential goods to come out of it. Can you even see that happening as it's as it's happening at the moment? Or is it just as a dumpster fire that Theresa May is trying to point a fire hose at, but it just it sprays everywhere else at the moment? Um, back to my optimism again. I always, you know, I, I'm never going to say there's no possible good that can come out of this process. I mean, it depends what what comes out of this process. Could be it could be anything from a you know a straightforward remain to a Full you know deal. WTO Jacob Rees-Mogg's dreamland. You know, Singapore of the North, whatever, uh, which is pretty unlikely, I think. But um, I think the likelihood is it's going to be a um, it's going to be a soft Brexit or a remain. Um, if I was going into a bookies right now, it would be it would be going more more towards that that kind of area. Um, I I do think that even though I would at the outset of this, obviously I would have preferred for the UK to remain part of the EU along with us as Just well. <laughs> there is an there is a there is an argument which has some validity. I think that going back on the decision now, which would have to be obviously by a second referendum could be incredibly divisive and could poison British politics in an even worse way for the next, you know, for for the next generation or so and that therefore we might be better off with a with an ultra soft Brexit, you know, as as soft as possible, remaining within the customs union, single market, keeping Nor- the, keep the four freedoms, Norway, Norway plus plus plus, plus, plus yeah, you know, um, and that does beg the question of why bloody do it in the first place? Then because you're still contributing money, you're still signing up to all the rules, and you don't even have any say in them. But that's you know that's you know you know that's a story for for another day. And I don't entirely agree with Finton. We had him on at one point about the book um, with Helen Thomas, who's a professor of, of political economy at Cambridge, and she's one of the participants in Talking Politics, uh, which is a, uh, anybody listening to this who likes politics podcasts should really check out Talking Politics. Yeah. It's really good. Um, the two hosts of two politics podcasts from Ireland are telling you to go listen to that one because yeah. they're way better than anything we could hope Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said it, not me. But yeah, yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. Um, and, and Helen, I think, has a very interesting, quite quite nuanced view of um, historical context of where this com- comes from. And I'm not going to even attempt to kind of to deliver that in some kind of simplified way. But I think at the core of it is that um, is that England and Britain and have always been on a somewhat different narrative path from continental Europe. And she argues that then within the English political um, makeup, there's a, there's a tension about that between what she describes as the as the court and the country, the court essentially being, and just bear with me for a second on this and I'll stop it, but the court essentially going all the way back to the Norman invasion, the imposition of a French aristocracy on the Anglo-Saxon populace, a language division, which obviously, you know, changed over time. But you, you, already, you always had what we now call a metropolitan elite looking towards Europe, whether Europe means the papacy or whether it means the EU, and a sort of a sturdy yeomanry, a Robin Hood, if you will, looking, looking, being much more, you know, much more focused on we're on this island and we're we're on our own here, and that that translates and continues on through the years. Obviously, it's changed hugely by the building of a whole or different construct, which is about Britain mm. and Imperial Britain, which is gone, but Britain is still there. And, you know, the, the, the part of this I haven't talked about at all is the DUP. Mm. And if you're talking about how the Irish see, see Brexit and how they, you know, they, they, they see where it's coming from, where did the DUP sit and in, in, in all that? And I, I don't really have an, uh, an answer to that, except that, you know, you're over there in London, Richie, and, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, looks more comprehensible to me than Sammy Wilson does, you know. Um, Mm. There's this breach in this island, which is really at the core of what's happening, you know, in the debates about the backstop and all that kind of stuff. And it's really bringing that to the fore again, that really deep cultural political divide, which is is still there. I think, especially from from the Irish perspective, it's making us so nervous because it is, as you say, bringing that breach that has existed on this island that we thought perhaps had been tampered down and 
healed by the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process that came after that. Well, it clearly hadn't been. Clearly hadn't been, yeah. I mean, like once we had any kind of, this is the first major test of that and it does seem to be failing and that is, that is making people a lot more anxious about, um, a lot more anxious as they think about what the, about these these ideas on the border. And I mean, Simon Coveney was on during the week saying that people may actually have to apply for special cards when they drive through Northern Ireland to prove that they have... Yeah, um, insu- there's insu- an insurance issue. Insurance, yeah, insurance issue, companies yeah. are going to be issuing, car- you know, issuing, issuing cards. But that. This, this comes back to something in a way that you were kind of asking about at the, at the, at the very start, I think, uh, which is about, you know, what's wrong with politics? Is politics broken? Those kind of big, big questions, whether it be a Trump or Brexit or whatever it might be. And we can apply them here, here, here to Ireland as well. And it seems to me that what's happening is that really profound changes in social structures and the way the economy works and the way society is, things like an ageing society, migration, the increased power of the Asian economies are contributing to revealing things that are pretty fundamentally wrong with our own political systems. And our own political systems have been in place for quite a long time. And Mm. I think you can make an argument that a lot of them have got kind of cobwebby and not fit for purpose. And, you know, everything from this really antiquated constitution, which Americans hold up as if it's kind of tablets from the mountain over there, to this bizarre unwritten constitution that they have over in the UK, which clearly doesn't seem to be fit for purpose at the moment. And more recently, like I said earlier, that, you know, Clinton helped in the Balkans and he did. But what he did was he he institutionalized a kind of system which isn't unlike what was in Northern Ireland, where you sort of recognize people's individual identities and you kind of froze them in aspic and you said, there it is, you've stop killing each other, well done, and now try and work together and try and soften, you know, try and get over the fact you were killing each other. And Northern Ireland is a bit like that. Eamon McCann, who I don't agree with on on everything, but Mm. I do agree with him on this, says that that institutionalization of the nationalist unionist divide or Catholic Protestant divide or whatever you want to uh, characterize it and and the way the parties have to identify as one way or another, uh, as one or the other in order to have any real political purchase in Northern Ireland, uh, was institutionalizing the sectarian divide and was going to be an impediment to creating any kind of a uh, any any kind of a move beyond that. And I think we can we can see that right now. They haven't had a government in nearly two years now. Yeah, so yeah. it's a it's a the post good even apart from Brexit, I think you can you can safely say the the post Good Friday settlement was running into serious trouble for those reasons. I agree with Eamon McCann about that because that that fault that fault that flaw was built into it. The response to that, of course, is but it worked. It stopped people killing each other. The IRA stood down, you know, and that that was a great success, which it, which it was. But it probably was coming to time to do something to figure out what what the next step was. Of course, underlying all this is the low rumble of demographic change in Northern Ireland and the fact that what you had was a, essentially a sectarian state, well two sectarian states set up in the island and the one in the north was built on certain demographic realities which are very soon not going to be the case anymore. The Protestant majority that exactly. was supposed to be there and now exactly. it looks like that the Catholics could overtake them pretty soon. And do you think it's going to be... It does, but then you ask, you know, what's a Catholic? Well, I was you know, going to ask. You know, what's, that, what's a, what, what, what mean... the hell is a Catholic? I mean, I, uh, what's a Catholic? What's a Protestant? You know, I mean, what's a, you know, is it a Ranger supporter and a Celtic supporter? <laughs> is it because your name is Sean instead of Trevor? You yeah. know, uh, how, how, how much deeper does it go from that in a late stage capitalist society in the <laughs> second decade of the 21st century? You know, I mean, it's, you know, d- despite what some of the DUP seem to think, it's not the bloody 17th century anymore, you know? We're not going to get the pikes out of the thatch and come for the Protestants, you know? Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Put away your pikes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, do you know what I mean? What do these, uh, and, I, and I think this applies more broadly as well, what do these badges of identity mean? I mean, we hear an awful lot about the phrase uh, identity politics, mm-hmm. you know, at the moment. But what do they actually mean in a society where we're not actually, and this is one of the points where um, I disagree with some of Finton's uh, thesis about the rise of fascism. Um, you know, there aren't people murdering each other on the streets right now because of these these political differences. I don't just mean in Northern Ireland. I mean on the streets of Europe or well, the UK. Apart or from the rare United instances States. such as the murder of um, the MP. Very... Yeah. Very, very rarely. Yeah. I know. I, I don't want to kind of downplay those, but you know, compared to the turmoil that existed in many countries, Western European countries in the twenties and the thirties, mm. you know, you're not seeing that kind of thing. You are seeing, you know, divisions expressed through, you know, social media messaging, which are which are which are really profound, but they're they're not the same kind of thing. And one of the things to give talking politics its second plug of this podcast that David Runciman, who's the host, says is that we really don't fully take account of the demographic change in Western societies, which is that we are so much older now, that there are so much, so many more people now over the age of 50, uh, and so proportionately fewer people 
who are children or who are under the, under the age of 30. I mean, obviously that's at its most extreme in countries like, you know, Japan and uh, and Italy. But you see it, you see it everywhere. Ireland is not mm. quite as far down that road. But that really changes the way that people think about what their identity is. It comes back to to come back to Brexit, obviously there was this age divide in the way that in the way that people voted in Brexit, and you have this situation where um, a bunch of people voted to take an action which probably wasn't going to affect them that much because they're going to be dead in a few years' time, but it was going to have an impact on a bunch of people who are going to have to live with it for decades. And I actually saw a suggestion this week based upon um, uh, the metrics of the British population that even if nobody changed their mind and you had a second referendum and people voted according to their age cohorts as they had in 2016, uh, Brexit would not pass because so many of the people who voted for Brexit last time out have died on it. Wow. Um, and also, I guess, the, the thing that David Runciman was trying to say as well is that um, the, the, to say that it's it's a different form of fascism and we can't exactly apply the models from the 20s and 30s is that going out into the streets and bashing each other over political issues is a young man's game. So it's a lot easier just to sit back on your couch and start tweeting violence at each other as opposed to actually doing it. Yeah, and what is that about, that kind of violence? And our understanding of what all, how all these things work is so different, you know? So it is... It is a form of violence, mm. you know, uh, you know the, the, the kind of abuse you see in social media. But it's a different form of violence. Because, and yeah, it, if you it, don't look at your phone, you're not vulnerable to it. <laughs> yeah, and its psychological impact and the way it plays out is 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 profoundly different. And we've seen that happening during the eighth referendum as well. There was like an, a, a lot of instances of particular um, prominent figures, essentially on both sides, that were getting really badly attacked by by the people that see them mm. as, as the enemy. But then ultimately, you can just. To turn on, like get rid of Twitter, like what Tyra Flynn did, and and go and move on to other projects, sure. and then yeah, that that removes yourself from that from that side of the of the of the actual debate. And discussion. But this is a world in which so many of these debates are 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 I think seem not quite real to people. Mm. Now, obviously, yes, the Eighth Amendment debate was real to women who wanted to have the right to have control over their own bodies. But if you, if you I mean, back to Trump, if you look at Trump, one of the things people are saying about the shutdown is this might be one of the first instances where an act of the administration has a real effect in real lives on people's lives because that hasn't been the case in the last two years. So what has happened is stuff that, you know, turmoil, but it's turmoil going on in people's heads and in the way they express themselves on social media. It's not turmoil as in, oh, Jesus, I've lost my job or, uh, my, or, or something is personally affecting me in some, in, in some serious way. And, and there's so much of Brexit, Trump, all this bloody stuff that seems to exist largely in nebulous cyberspace rather than in mm. real world effects for the moment, for the moment. We'll just briefly do a speed run through the other places in the world that are fucked up as well, because um, we are too Anglo-centric on this podcast. So just briefly, yeah. um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, they seem to have elected their uh, own version of Trump, except uh, arguably a lot potentially worse. Well, certainly from the things he's saying, he's yeah. going to be a lot worse. I don't know enough about Brazilian politics. I think you're absolutely right about that. We look at the world through Anglo, to Anglo-centric prism. There are obviously, you know, there, there, there are cultural reasons for that. Um, so, he looks terrible. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it is it is funny, isn't it? It's kind of. I was thinking about what we were what we were going to talk about in the podcast today, and I was going to say that um, when I think about this stuff, there's 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 three um, there's three kind of ideas or, or writers who I think about uh, in relation to this. One is Guy Debord, who wrote the Society of the Spectacle way back in the 1960s or earlier, which gave rise to an art movement called Situationism, which is all about this the fact that our society exists in a form of spectacle rather than rather than reality led to. Things like Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols and various other things too. Um, the second one, obviously, is Martin McLuhan, and uh, he also predates the coming of the internet. But mm. his a lot of his thinking about the way in which the the communication tools we work actually drive the way in which we think and the way we order our societies seem more true than ever. And the last one is 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 Neil Postman, who wrote a number of things, but his best-known book written in the mid-'80s is Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is, uh, again, pre-internet, but it's about the way in which the worlds of entertainment and news and politics uh, were starting to intersect even at that point and blur. And in a way, that is the classic example of what Trump is the exa- example of. And what Trump is, of course, is he's an entertainment product in many mm-hmm. ways. I, I remember um, I was doing, I was talking to a bunch of um, quite elderly people who were um, had had played a significant part in Irish politics and things like Irish diplomacy, trying to explain them. When it was when I was online editor, uh, the way in which media was changing, and and I was talking about them, and I'm listening to these you know podcasts about American you know about American politics, and I'm following this online and this person on Twitter, and um, one of them, a very distinguished former diplomat, said, "Do you 
do you not have any interest in European politics? And it kind of stopped me for a minute because I was consuming these vast amounts of stuff, um, all of it very entertaining. And I certainly wasn't paying any attention. And, you know, who can blame me? Who does? To to Juncker and Tusk and what's happening, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's happening in the parliament this yeah. week or, or any of that kind of stuff. And there is something about um, the the way in which politics have gone, particularly in the United States and, and in other countries, which is they have taken on the quality of, 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 of entertainment. Um, and that has, is one of the things which has opened up the possibility for Trump-like figures to, you know, to, emerge, to emerge across the spectrum, I think. You know? The way I kind of view it, because I've been trying to get more and more into politics, that's what this podcast has been about, but American politics has always felt like a Marvel movie to me where it's flashier, Sure. And there's like big, big recognizable names associated with it. And you can kind of dip in and out and get like instant dopamine hit from <laughs> and like just following along with it. Whereas some of the more complicated stuff and some of the stuff at home or stuff in countries where I'm less familiar with is more like an independent film. It's more like a Sundance <laughs> thing that's a little bit headier, a little bit harder to get your head around and requires a bit more investment and thinking after the fact. And you don't want to do that. That's not what you came to this thing for. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But, but no, I should, I should and I do, but it's but, just... But, but there, there's that, a, I think that's, that I think that's absolutely right. It's that it, it, it's kind of fast food, you know, and we know, we know yeah. how fond Trump is of, of his fast food. <laughs> and then I think you add to that the kind of turbocharging of the immediate dopamine hit, which, uh, with, you know, with, with, which digital media is looking for, the, which is the kind of business model upon which all digital media for, for, for good or ill is based. And and you end up with this, it's a kind of turbocharged version of it. Like I was thinking, I was, the other day I was talking to a colleague in here who is a, an intelligent, well-read person, uh, What was like me, old enough to remember the 1980s. And this movie came out, uh, The Front Runner, last week, I think it was, which was about the Gary Hart scandal. Mm. Gary Hart was the first big sex scandal. He was the likely Democratic candidate. And because of a sex scandal in 1987, uh, he he didn't make it. And, um, and this person said to me, Never knew who Gary. I never heard about this. I never knew who Gary Hart was, and I was around at that point. Why didn't I just notice that? And I said the reason was because you weren't following American politics remotely at the same things. You know, the Gary Hart story wouldn't have been carried every day on on radio, which is where you might have heard it. It would have been buried quite far down the you know farm pages and newspapers if and the news would have been coming three or four or five days late if you if, if mm. you'd even been paying attention mm. to that. So the fact that American politics is part of the is is a branch of the entertainment industry, which I think is true. And the fact that that's turbocharged by digital means that we're all living this bloody soap opera now, uh, probably far too much. And this comes back to the very start of what we were talking about, probably far too much. Yeah, you know? to the point that far actually I, just, I think I mentioned before we were recording is that me and Richie um, feel very, like we don't have the proper tool set or capability to talk properly about Irish politics, even yeah. though we are both yeah. Irish people like with supposedly an invested interest in it. And we were far more comfortable talking for ages about Trump and Brexit because they're just so much more compelling and, and easy to easy to consume, I guess. Sure, and that's, and that's a shame. And I think particularly it's a shame because, you know, political, what's happening? In the world of politics, um, what's happening in the United States is connected. You can see you can see echoes of it, and you can see reactions to it, and things going in the same direction here. Just because things seem and they do seem quite placid here in many mm. ways, and there seems to be quite a broad consensus on a lot of issues, and 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 from the point of view of the economy, things are going quite well. And obviously, there are people who have issues with all that, you know, and there are there are there are significant problems as well. But there doesn't seem to be the level of you know, you know, drama thrives on conflict, and there doesn't seem to be the level of conflict here to deliver that kind of you know dopamine hit again. Doesn't mean that all those things aren't going on here, mm-hmm. you know, um, and 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 actually. I mean, the, our politics podcast, as I said earlier on, is two strands. And the strand that involves me sitting around with our politics team um, is, to me, in some ways, the more interesting one because I'm kind of an outsider looking in. They're the ones who are in that bubble all the time and they'll go up. They spend all their time up in Leinster House. I don't know if you guys have been in Leinster House uh, we have, yeah. at all. Um, and you, so you know what it's like. It's really odd mm. kind of place up there. Mm. And I don't think people really get a sense of it. So I like to try and pull out of them what it's what it's really like and what's going on there. Now, obviously, politics is not just about Leinster House and it's not just about politicians, and that's what that's another bad thing I think that's happened in the last uh, in the last twenty years. This idea that politicians are a particular class and very often defined as a particularly evil class who are just sort of practitioners of some sort of bad arts which are really designed only to benefit them financially in some way and the other advantage of this podcast is I've got to meet a lot of politicians I did anyway and you know they're not like that they're human beings like you and me um, with all their well, all the 
faults and, 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 and good things that we have. And in fact, one of the things about the Irish system was, does, I think in particular, is they're pretty, they're, they're not that far away from reflecting, you know, the, the broad span of, of what, you know, what the Irish population is. Mm. Of course, you know, there's, there's class bias. There's probably more people from, you know, from well-to-do backgrounds than there are in the, in, in the population as a whole. There are, there are legitimate issues about that, but they're not as removed as people are in many countries. People give off all the time about clientelism and about how people are too close and they're delivery boys or delivery girls for their locals. But the other side of that is, and I think that the, the, the main buffer we have against some of the madness we've seen in other countries is that they are so close uh, and they're not a, you know, a far removed elite um, deciding, you know, conspiring against people's interests. You can't possibly argue that everybody has had face-to-face contact with their politicians in Ireland. But there is some attempts by people who want to replicate kind of a Trump-esque or Brexit-esque um, far-right populist movements to try and claim that there is a liberal elite in Ireland that is stirring things up. And I think um, it's probably fair to say that Ireland's imitation of the Yellow Vest movement from France has pretty much been co-opted by that kind of a of, of, of a group. And I think it's it's like a lot of the people that were involved in the direct democracy sure. movement and the Land League and different organisations like yeah. that that have been popping up since the recession. And do you think eventually some and like we seen what happened with Peter Casey he got a quarter of the presidential vote by yep. saying the things that everyone nodded their head and said oh yeah well he's just saying what we're all thinking and then he got the votes that that nobody expected that were going to be there for him mm. and my question is I guess is do you think someone who is willing to take that and turn it into a doll campaign election in turn like maybe like a parliamentary thing and actually take that brand of I'm going to say like poison toxic kind of politics because I don't agree with any of the things that these people are trying to are trying to sell do you think that that well, is going to open up and actually be a pot, be a, a, like a cogent thing in Irish politics. Well, I think soon. it's no surprise that the Irish Yellow Vest movement, which going by the size of the demonstrations, is relatively you know small, and you know we need to take a you know bring a sense of proportion to these things. Yeah. But it's no surprise that, as you say, it has its roots in movements which arose out of the uh, the financial crash of two thousand and eight, because that's ultimately I think where all this stuff comes from that um, that that was in my view a conspiracy against the populace by a financial elite um, it was it was um, socialism for rich people and capitalism for poor people and it I had a profound effect upon the way a lot of people think about how their societies are run and and who they're run for but the question of whether that which then very often turns into things like an issue issues with with what's called in some quarters globalism mm. um conspiracies to have open borders and the next thing before you know where you are people are talking about white genocide and all this kind of you know truly horrendous stuff whether that's doable here i don't know the kc phenomenon it's what people call a second order election people didn't have a stake in it uh, so a protest vote, they all thought Michael Higgins was going to win anyway. Um, a, a protest vote, it, it, it undoubtedly revealed um, uh, that, that Irish people are more comfortable with, with expressing um, prejudicial views about travellers than they probably are about any other ethnic group. And that's something, that's a deep-seated thing in the society, which, you, which, which can't be ignored. But if your, your question was, can people get uh, candidates running for the doll? I think that's a, uh, the, the system is such that, it's quite. It's pretty hard to get over the line with that, and we've seen that on a on a number of occasions. It needs a level of ground level activism, mm. people on the ground, knowledge, uh, candidates who are attractive enough and well known enough to win in a specific con- constituency. A whole set of factors which are very difficult to achieve. If you had something like uh, you know a list system or something like of that sort, I think it would probably be easier to get around those. And then I think you would tap into, uh, because my experience of life in Ireland is that Irish people are just as, you know, racist as people in other countries um, uh, at at, at similar kind of levels. I would also say that, you know, being concerned about immigration levels does not automatically mean you're you're racist, and mm-hmm. I don't think it should preclude having a grown up concert con- uh, conversation about immigration, how it should work, how best it should work for the betterment of the people who are in the country, plus our duties to people who are in you know who are in trouble in other countries. Um, we were going to do a little conclusion about like actually determining whether or not politics was actually broken, but I think over our hour long conversation, we've we've touched on that too many times to to really go over it again. But Richie, you have a question down on the notes that I think is a good way to wrap it up with. Do you want to throw it out here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you're, you're um, uh, as we said already, arts and culture editor for the Irish mm. Times. And so you're probably the perfect person to ask, like, what, what, do you f- what do you find 
what do you go to when you need a distraction from politics when it becomes a little bit too much? It's something we used to do on the podcast before. We give recommendations for what distracted us when um, politics was getting a little bit too, getting us down a little bit too much or getting a little bit too heady. Uh, so what, what would you like to throw out to people to... to okay, I've got to admit something. I love rugby and uh, <sighs> I'm going to watch, uh, I'm going to watch uh, Munster against Exeter today and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, um, we never uh, talk about sports. <laughs> I am, um, um, I am, Looking forward far more than I should to the uh, last series of Game of Thrones, which is uh, about to land in a in a few weeks' time. I'm just yeah. a bit too excited about it than <laughs> than is appropriate for a man of my age, and uh, <laughs> and I'm probably going to be disappointed in the end because last series are you know usually you know usually let people down let people down in in some ways. Yeah, but the stakes have never been higher with Game of Thrones, like uh, in terms of like it is going to be the conclusion of a story that essentially will be the conclusion of the story because you can't really see the books getting finished and it is it has been the cultural phenomenon of this decade yeah. and yeah uh, we're, all, we're we're waiting to see whether or not it'll be a flop or a fun yeah one. they'll stick the landing I, I, the other the other thing i like to do is to uh take advantage of the fact that I can impose my will still just about on my two teenage children and I can force them to watch movies <laughs> that I really enjoy and that I think they might enjoy too and usually they don't last night we watched this Spinal Tap uh, I think one of them liked it and yes. I think the other one had the clue what was going on <laughs> but I enjoy that that's fair enough Hugh thanks very much for taking the time on a, sun, uh, a Saturday afternoon to um, talk politics with us um, I don't know if we necessarily figured out what is wrong with politics but we certainly talked about it a lot which is uh, we're going to add more mess to the noise and probably just make more people angry but sure look that's what we do every week anyway yeah. ironically is this is this indicative of the problem <laughs> <laughs> this discussion on the possible solutions that we didn't really hit on at all yeah I think we need to set up another six podcasts to go into this in more depth no problem yeah and just shout at people to listen to them <laughs> thanks very much you Pleasure. Thank you. It's great. It's great having you, but you're the ones who had me. I get confused because we're in yeah. my studio. <laughs> you are hosting us in physical person, but we're hosting you on our podcast. Yeah, that's, that's all very right. matter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you, Richie. See ya. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Up to 90, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything from the 90s. So, we're going to talk like Louise Woodward, Italian 90, Macarena, Julie. Goodfellas Pizza, uh, Macaulay Culkin, because like, he was such a big deal. We all, we don't. Julie. Just the, yeah? They'll get it. Will they? Of course. Okay. Up to 90, it's a podcast about the 90s. With me, Emma Dorn. And me, Julie J. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, CatholicMatch.com, Tinder, um, Plenty of Fish, you know, all the usual oh, spots. Judy. They'll get it. Up to 90. Witch hunt. Witch hunt. Witch hunt. Witch hunt.